This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. everybody and welcome back to another episode of east screen west screen this is episode 47 for tuesday november 2nd 2010 as always i am paul fox and joining me from some spot here in the fragrant harbor harbor is mr kevin ma hi everybody and also joining us tonight is webmaster kozo who sometimes goes by the name of ross hello all right, so we don't have any uh, real big films to talk about this week, Kevin. Uh, you've got the uh, the festival going on, so you've been seeing a lot, but we don't really have any official releases to talk about. I haven't seen anything in the past week. So mm-hmm. we thought we'd do something a little bit different, and we'd use this time tonight to talk a little bit about the state of Hong Kong cinema. I think we talked about this a little bit last year, so we thought it'd be a good time to sort of broach this subject again this year. But before we do that, why don't we get into talking about some of the recent news items that have popped up. So for East Screen News this week, we've got a couple items to talk about. Now this first item, not really news, uh, just a little mention that I made on Twitter. Last week we were supposed to go out with our group to watch the new film uh, Don Quixote. And that plan was scrubbed when we were informed that the release here in Hong Kong did not come with English subtitles. Um, Very disappointed, as I was, because I was looking forward to seeing this, despite hearing some negativity regarding the film. But then the other day, I'm on the bus and watching a program they call Roadshow, which is sort of like commercials and previews and uh, little marketing plots for various things as you're sitting there riding on the bus. And I see a trailer come on for Don Quixote, and the trailer has both Chinese and English subtitles right there. And I was like, well, what's up with that? I mean, why are they giving us a trailer with subtitles, but not a film with subtitles? And then I started wondering, is there an actual print out there that has been subtitled, or did they just spend the money to subtitle the trailer? Uh, So what do you think, Kevin? Have we been deceived? Uh, I don't know about deception. I I think what... I think, like I said last week, what they did was that they just didn't want to spend the money to add on new subtitles apart from the one they did for China. Unless it was in traditional Chinese. I'm I'm not sure because I didn't go see the film. But it just might have been another case of where they didn't want to hire someone to do, you know, a real set of English subtitles. I mean, how was the English subtitles on the trailer? Were they, you know, grammatically correct? uh, Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, I couldn't read all of them because, you know, the screens on the buses are kind of tiny. I was sitting a few seats back, but they were there, and they were pretty legible from what I was reading. Um, looked yeah. like standard trailers. 
Mm, or so standard maybe, trailer subtitles, I should say. Yeah, so maybe just a case of maybe they have it done for the DVD and they just, I don't know why they decided not to do it. Uh, decided not to put a English set up English subtitles on it, you know, maybe just because it costs money or because it, 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 it they need more time, whatever reason it is. Yeah, it, it sucks, but we just, uh, I guess we know that at least the DVD will probably have subtitles. All right, our second bit of news. Um, this is dating back to something we talked about over the summer, and that is the film My Name is Khan uh, that we did a short review here on. It will be getting a theatrical release in China, and uh, this is going to be handled as a revenue-sharing release, and it's taking up one of the 20 slots per year allocated for top foreign movies. Um I'm glad this film is getting some more play. I, I don't know how successful it's going to be in China. Uh, it, you know, it does deal in some ways with politics, and it is sort of picking at the U.S. So maybe, you know, because it's so—I wouldn't say it's anti-U.S., but it's definitely very critical of the previous administration, as we talked about. So maybe this will get some legs in China. What do you think? I think one of the reasons that this film is being played in China is because unlike the more typical Bollywood films, and I've seen three big Bollywood blockbusters this year already, and My Name is Khan is the only one that doesn't really have um, the traditional Bollywood musical sequence. I think those um, people who are not used to watching Bollywood cinema, i.e. commercial audience in China, might find it strange, or the, the, the distributor might find that kind of strange. So um, I guess since My Name is Khan is one of those bare, uh, rare Bollywood blockbuster that doesn't have a, a traditional musical sequence, it made it easier to bring in i think the the politics and the the uh, mental mental health issues that the film mentioned might might make it kind of a hard sell in uh in china in fact i think a, another bollywood film that i saw this week uh called the bang i think that has a better chance playing in china because it's one of those typical action blockbusters even though it does have you know your standard body musical sequence i think those are more crowd-pleasing stuff that might play better in China, which kind of so that it kind of baffles me why they would choose my name is Khan other than the uh, musical sequence issue. Mm. But but you know a lot of Chinese films have really bizarre and strange out of nowhere musical sequences too. Yeah, but that was I believe the last time I saw that was in Flirting Scholars too, and that was a uh, no, but also terrible. in uh, Adventure of the King, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then also um, I just saw. Uh, uh, the chef, the butcher, uh, the butcher, the chef, and the swordsman. Also, I probably slept through that musical sequence. Okay. Also, singing <laughs> out of nowhere and by a really grotesque, uh, corpulent people. So, yeah, yeah. I, I remember Chinese a film too. That I, I don't know if it was last year, or the year before, was um, Chadney Chalk to China. Ah, uh, yeah, Chadney Chalk to China. Yeah, yes. which was yes. actually a pretty good film, but it was long and it was you know very standard Bollywood with. Uh, sort of kung fu on on the one hand and musical sequences on the other uh i don't i'm not sure if, i think that did play in china actually now that you mention it because that was kind of a co-production uh by warner brothers um but again that's i mean that's one of the rare exceptions i don't know why bollywood films don't have a bigger market in china now that we're, we're talking about it because i think they're they're big they're they're grand and they're kind of the commercial film that you know china could use in their in their cinemas all right, our third story, uh, a little bit of odd and, and somewhat sad news that I came across on Film Biz Asia. Uh, out of the Philippines, actor Kirk Abella was shot dead this past weekend. 
um, performing in a British film that was shooting in Cebu in, in the Philippines. And basically, uh, the film's title, Going Somewhere, and as, I, as, the, as the article goes on, um, there was a scene where uh, there were some motor, motorbikes and a robbery that was being sequenced. And when the actor Abella pulled out a gun, which was a, you know, a prop, a replica, um, a village watchman named Eddie Koizan uh, pulled out a real gun and shot the actor, and the actor died. Uh, you know, it, uh, I, I can understand how you know, accidents happen, but I'm assuming if you're shooting a film, even if you're shooting a film at night, you've got you know big 12K lights out there, you've got crew all around. It kind of seems kind of weird that you know somebody would simply mistake this as a real thing. I mean, unless you're like at a really odd angle and you can't see anybody else around. Um, I don't know. It sounds kind of weird, and and it reminded me vaguely of the accident that happened to uh, Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee, when he was. Uh, doing the crow um so kind of sad kind of weird i don't know you think that's possible kevin it's actually happened to me before kind of um i was shooting a student film on on campus uh back in my college days um and we were doing uh you know gun battles in this hallway and i think someone saw us and they thought we were doing this for real or we're playing real guns or something and suddenly the cops showed up and and Patted us all down and, and searched all of us. That was a very weird incident, and that just kind of goes to say that why we need sufficient security when you're making a film, especially when you're making a film with fake guns or fake, uh, explosives or action things like that, because uh, you never know when someone doesn't know that you're you're just making a movie. I'm not sure. I, I didn't read the the, the report carefully. So this, did it take place at night? I mean, it took place during the day. When when not as much film uh, light equipment are needed, that could be. I, I could understand why someone could, you know, with with not enough security, I could see why someone would mistake would mistake in a situation. But this takes place take place at night. At night. Um, as I look at the article, now it doesn't specifically say it was at night or in the day. Uh, it just says volunteer village watchman. Uh, did not know the film was shooting. He was woken by the sound of motorbikes and mistook the scene for real robbery. So since it said he was woken, I'm assuming it was at night. Maybe he was sleeping during the day, though. That's a possibility. Um, but yeah, still, I mean, a student film, I, I could understand, you know, because students don't have a budget. They don't have big, you know, 16K lights or 12K lights. You know, they don't have uh, gaffers and riggers and, and, and uh, you know, a, a DP on standby and production assistants all standing around watching what's going on. There's no action choreographer there. There's no props person there. But I'm thinking this is, you know, a British film. I'm thinking that it means they have some kind of a budget. They're shooting in the Philippines. It just seems kind of weird. It seems like that's a very unlikely thing to happen if you've got a standard crew on hand. Uh, I think it would be very obvious that you're shooting. I, I think it does depend on what kind of crew they have. Maybe they have a very small crew. Maybe they have a not very professional crew. You know, when you have an unprofessional crew, you know, a lot of people want to stand around one place watching what's going on and forget about trying to secure the set, things like that. All, all kinds of accidents could happen on set, um, especially when your crew is not amateurish or not, you know, not up to snuff. I suppose mm. that's, the, that's the phrase, yeah. Yeah, I guess anything's possible. 
All right, our next bit of news. Um, some news about filmmaker Jia Zhang Ke, who is uh, turning commercial. And this news also coming from Film Biz Asia. Um, the director is going to be having some work come through Distribution Workshop. And it will be releasing his film, I Wish I Knew, a bit later this month uh, here in Hong Kong. So I'll look forward to that because I really like uh, some of his earlier films. And it says that he's expected to shoot uh, in the Qing Dynasty in March or April in, in his hometown in northern China. And that, uh, yeah, he's going to be taking a bit of a commercial turn. Um, what do you think? I mean, because he's pretty much known as sort of an artistic and social commentarian with uh, some of his films. I mean, his films do have narrative to them. But if you look at a film like The World or uh, Still Life, they're, they're definitely, uh, they tend to be the, on the more artistic side um, than in, in terms of really strong commercial narrative. Do you think he'll be able to make the transition? Yeah, I think his movies are more on the patience testing side than, than the artistic side. Um, <laughs> Jajanka, I've only slept through one of his films before, <laughs> sadly. You make it sound like... <laughs> You know the, this this one night stand. You know I've slept with one of his films through one of his films before, so we have a very tenuous relationship. <laughs> yeah, me and me and Jalen are not sadly uh, we're in a rocky state right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a very I, nice man, though. Yeah, yeah. Kozo met him this past this past weekend uh, during an interview. Um, but it's a very strange turn into a commercial film because. Uh, his Qing Dynasty film is being produced by none other than Mr. Johnny Toe, who is you know not known for his period films or producing um, you know Altair Chinese Altair's works. But you know it's great that uh, uh, his latest one, I wish I knew, was playing in Hong Kong. Actually, there's a bit of a Hong Kong angle to it. Um, it does have some Hong Kong names in it. Uh, Rebecca Pan. You know, not really a Hong Kong name, but she is well known in Hong Kong. So, you know, there's an angle. I don't know if that really is affecting why they're releasing it. Well, what do you think, Ross? Do you think he'll be able to uh, oh. do a successful commercial film rather than a sort of a festival circuit style film? You know, I think good directors can do anything. I really think so. I don't think anyone should be limited. It's like, you know, Johnny Toe can certainly do anything if he really puts his mind to it. Um, so I don't really see why not. He started in narrative. True, his narrative is slow. Um, it's, just, it's his way. You know, who knows when he's going to do his other... He's, he also wants to do other genres, supposedly, besides, you know, a uh, kung fu film. He supposedly wants to do also a uh, detective film, uh, a police action film. Are these all going to be really slow? And, uh, you know, uh, who knows? Uh, maybe he'll change his style up. It'll certainly be interesting to see. But I think a good director who really understands film and uh, you know knows how it affects audiences can do what he wants to do. You know, maybe so. I don't see why he can't do it. Um, the proof is going to be you know when he actually tries. You know, I, I have much more faith in him than in like some of these people who are constantly making thrillers that that suck. Such as. I saw a film a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Something about stop. a child and an eye. No, sorry. Uh, yeah, if he's going to make a kung fu film, I just hope it's not another take on the Ip Man story. I think that's kind of overdone. We're, we're done with Ip Man. Move on. It's not Wong Kar Wai's fault. Okay. <laughs> he was working on Ip Man. 
long before Donnie Yen. But it is his fault because he's he's far too slow in doing his filmmaking. Yeah, so you know, someone should have made twenty forty six before him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's his problem. He can only make original films like like My Blueberry Nights because no one can copy it before it comes out. Yeah. <laughs> but it man, yeah, he made a mistake. You know, he chose something that everyone else could have copied. And you know, Raymond Wong, he's he's a man who uh, you know does not know an idea that he cannot steal. <laughs> <laughs> So that's 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 fine. Well, speaking of ideas you can't steal, uh, we had a request to talk a little bit about the 3D Sex and Zen trailer. Um, so why don't we turn it over you can steal to that idea? I'm sorry, <laughs> you can steal. Well, I, I think, think Korea already has. I think that's an idea that's been sort of stolen and stolen and restolen over the years. Um, the series is certainly not a new series. The genre is certainly not a new genre. Uh, maybe the it does not have a pe- uh, limited or peculiar history. Yeah. <laughs> does, is, are you going to explain that or? Uh, <laughs> I think we'll explain that on another show. <laughs> okay. You know what he's talking about? Yeah. Okay. Um. So, well, the three D Sex and Zen trailer was released. It's now playing on YouTube. Uh, as we were commenting before the show started, I don't think it's going to stay on YouTube very long. I will put a link up, but I don't expect that link link to last long because it is a uh, rather explicit trailer for YouTube, even though it it's got the naughty bits sort of uh, pixelated out. Um, what are your what were your thoughts on this though, guys? I mean, a lot of a lot of what they're doing, a lot of the the 3D or the 3D isms that they have in the trailer, you know, it looks like they're just you know out of Piranha 3D or, or some cheesy kind of 3D film. I don't think we should expect anything more than that from a movie named Sex and Zen 3D Extreme Ecstasy. Um, you know, it's nice that they're playing around with the with the, with the, with the aesthetics. Um, it's not like something like uh, Clash of Titans, which was uh, converted later on. Uh, not like that. And you know, at least you know the filmmakers are making it to play to the format. And um, you know, it's something Zen. It's not going to be high art. It's not going to change the world. It's just going to be 3D and sex. But I was really surprised with, you know, some of the scenes that we do see in the trailer. You know, there, as I recall, there was a scene where, like, one woman's hitting another woman with a lamp post or some similar type of object. And the angle is such so that the woman's head gets knocked to the side and you see blood spray sort of coming at the camera, you know, so you've got that 3D effect. And then there was another thing, some kind of vase or something that broke and pieces and shards were sort of, you know, coming toward the camera. I wasn't really expecting them to use these kind of very... Stan- yeah, these sort of standard tricks that you would see in any sort of 3D feature. Um, it, it, yeah. I, I'm surprised they took the time to do that and, and the money. Well, you know, they're shooting in 3D. What are you going to do? And, and frankly, if they had gotten really creative, I don't think that film would be allowed to play in Hong Kong. <laughs> well, that, that, that was so, sort of my thought. You know, I thought, you know, you're going to do a 3D thing. I can think of a lot of great things they can do with that 3D that, to be honest, number one, would never be allowed. Number two, I don't even think I want to see that. <laughs> so, so, so frankly, you know, they have to, you know, and also we don't know what else is in the film yet. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is all they can really show us. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the trailer is kind of racy. The teaser is kind of racy, like racier than you'd expect. But honestly, there are many, many things that 
still cannot be shown. So maybe they have other things happening. We won't know until it happens. And you know, honestly, I you know they have my money. But it's it's hard to say because you know what, what really happened to that made the category three go down. The reason that Sex and Zen made that money is category three is is basically carried by you know old guys who you know go and watch the theater, sit in the theater, and uh, you know just get their rocks off, and that's it. That's what category three was carried by for all those years. So Sex and Zen was able to cross over to the mainstream, and people were like, "Oh wow, we got to see this. It's just completely whacked out." And you know they were correct. This has that potential, but no film in this market lives up to its potential, in my opinion, anyway. Unless it's uh, uh, Echoes of the Rainbow, which completely surpasses its potential. <laughs> but no, I mean, I mean, what do you think the likelihood of this being something that actually squeaks into the festival circuit? You know, do you think this will play at Udine or or has a chance to get into some festivals because of sort of the novelty of it? First of all, I don't know if Udine is equipped for 3D. So <laughs> if they're not equipped for 3D, I don't think it's going. Um, so but I, th- I think it will, it will travel to genre festivals, you know. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a curiosity ones. factor. Right. It also depends on how, how, the, how good they do it. Because, you know, you hear they're, they're working with wires and stuff. You know, that, that's, that's already step one. They're doing the right thing. <laughs> so if they got wire work in there somewhere then hopefully they're doing it in a way that will make audiences go, what the... And, you know, that's what you want to see. Are you sure the... they said they were doing wire work and it wasn't wire bras? <laughs> they're not supposed to be wearing bras, though. No. So, it's, you know, <laughs> so if it's wire bras, those things are, are, are coming off. Um, well, that's one, of the, that's one of the scenes in the trailer, is like the, 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 the whole robe just sort of being th- flung off. It's not uh, flung at the camera, though, so I was like a missed opportunity. Ah, I was disappointed by that. Yes. <laughs> it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. So <laughs> when do we have a projected release date for this yet? May, Golden Week in 2011. They're already talking about people in China. We're talking about uh, coming down here in droves uh, during the May Golden Week. To come okay, and actually, this. maybe that will propel it higher. Yes, it'll be another one of those security... Yeah, it would be the less caution curiosity factor again. And remember, less caution made like fifty mil. Exactly. So I think, uh, yeah. So I think IMAX. It'll be we have to get those uh, IMAX tickets pretty early, guys. So so maybe I'll eat my words, and it'll totally make forty mil, just like less caution made fifty mil, and that was like three hours long. My God. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but that one had well, one that was actually a good movie. I think word of mouth carried that movie uh, into the fifty million range. I don't think. Section 3D is going to have to word of mouth to carry into past 20. It's just, you know, the curiosity factor. I don't think anyone's going to expect it to be a good film. They're just going to go... Okay, the only thing, only reason it would completely not do it, I think, I mean, not 50 mil, but it wouldn't make huge amounts, is that is if they just botch it and it just sucks. Yeah. I don't expect it to be bad, but if, you know, there's enough talking points, I think people will go. It's like it's like a ride at Disneyland. <laughs> like, it's like an experience. Except you, you have to it. be this tall to get in. <laughs> uh, actually, this is true. <laughs> you must, well, you you must pass certain you know criteria to get in. All right. Well, we'll have to wait and uh, see next year, and we'll have to revisit uh, with Ross and uh, get his uh, take on it. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs>
All right, before we move into our discussion topic, we've just got a couple West Screen new, uh, West Screen West Screen news stories to cover this week. Uh, first bit of news, a uh, little bit of update on The Hobbit. Um, some more casting has been done. Uh, the cast is starting to round out nicely. Uh, it seems that since the union has um, gotten their issues with the New Zealanders worked out, uh, things seem to be moving along fairly quickly. Um, so James Nesbitt and Adam Brown have been scheduled to play. Um, Nesbitt is going to be playing the dwarf, uh, Beaufort. So if you don't know who he is, you can go back and revisit the book or revisit the old, uh, Rankin-Bass cartoon. And interestingly, it says that Sir Ian McKellen, who plays Gandalf, has not yet signed a contract to appear in the film, which I thought for sure that we had, uh... A news story, maybe it was last year, that said that he had been, he had already been tapped to play Gandalf, um, but he's still under, uh, not under contract. So that's a little bit worrisome. Uh, hopefully, they'll get that worked out fairly soon. All right, our last bit of news this week: uh, some news about the Hangover. We talked a little bit about the Hangover last week, or the Hangover Two, I should say. And we actually got a couple comments from some of the guys on the website with regard to The Hangover. Um, this week's news, not about Mel Gibson, though. It's about uh, actress Jamie Chung, who's joining the cast. Uh, she'll be playing the uh, the fiancé to the uh, Helms character, uh, who was at who was the one who was engaged to or married to Heather Graham in the first film. This film will be taking place in Thailand, so... Uh, we can only oh, no. we can only imagine what kind of uh, trouble the guys will be getting into over there. It also says that both Ken Jeong uh, and Mike Tyson will be returning, so that'll be interesting. Um, I'm really digging Ken Jeong on the TV series Community. I don't know if you guys have uh, seen any of those episodes. They had a really good Halloween episode last week, though. Yeah, um, I was just watching one of the episodes just before we recorded. Yeah. Um, so I haven't even seen Hangover. Yeah, you got you got to watch it. It's, uh, uh, I'll lend you a Blu-ray. Oh, okay, uh, thank you. It's good. You know, I was I was saying last week I was kind of I held off a long time because of the hype and I was afraid I wasn't going to like it, but it was actually it was actually really funny. Um, but Jamie Chung, yeah, she's going to be joining uh, ex uh, real worlder uh, from MTV. So and, uh, don't don't forget her uh, claim to fame, Dragon Ball Evolution. Oh yeah. I was, I was trying to, and you just reminded me. Thanks. Uh, I, I, I just wish that they stuck to to America in the film. Uh, the whole Thailand thing, the Asian, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm Asian and I'm sensitive to this kind of stuff. I, Yeah, that just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, the whole Thailand thing, and now Jamie Chung being in the film. Yeah. Um, I, we, you know, we were talking last week. We, we had mentioned that, at least for me, I, I don't really see the film needing a sequel. And from the direction that they're going, it sounds like they're just going to be trying to sort of top themselves in 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 that department. And seldom do those kind of narratives work out. Uh, well, I could be wrong. We'll have to wait and see. Ich 
right, it is time to touch on our main topic this week, and that is the state of Hong Kong cinema. Um, let me let me throw it over to you guys. If you were to describe the state of Hong Kong cinema, uh, what would you say? Would you say it's uh, mediocre, below average, doing poorly on its last leg? Uh, do you think that uh, the cinema industry is dead? I mean... Compared with the number of productions or the amount of revenue productions are taking in, how would you how would you rate the current industry? I, I personally think it's been slowly merged into the Chinese film industry. Um, slowly since the SIPA thing in two thousand three, where um, Hong Kong cinema, no, Hong Kong films no longer have to compete with other foreign films that could go into China as a local film. Ever since that, it just kind of opened a whole new, you know. A whole new chest of gold for Hong Kong filmmakers, and um, I've heard a director. Uh, I think I heard a director say that he can't even work in Hong Kong anymore because all the people he used to work with all moved up north. All the cinematographers, all the film professionals, all the other directors, the producers—they all moved up north. Um, it's becoming a reality that I am slowly starting to accept that we're going to Hong Kong cinema is going to become a niche. It's going to become a. It's going to go into way of maybe Taiwanese cinema or even. You know, just this interesting little local cinema scene that sometimes makes its own movies, but mostly Chinese films. More or less true. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's depressing. <laughs> so, well, you know, I mean, Hong Kong cinema is, you know, what, what it's defined as. It depends on what you define the cinema as from a country. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people, you know, we're kind of stuck in certain time periods. Some people never left the 60s and the 70s with Shaw's. To some people, it's the 80s and 90s with, you know, the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, quote-unquote. You know, when you had Cinema City and Film Workshop and all those guys going nuts. And then, um, and then you know, there's a newer breed where it's, it's, it's SPL or nothing. But, um, <laughs> you know, Hong Kong cinema is, you know, what is it really? You get into that question of what it's supposed to be. You know, is it, is it action cinema? Is it genre cinema? Is it defined by that whole anything goes idea of the 80s and 90s? So that really is what attracted probably all three of us, I would guess. You know, three of us, you know, we, at least me and, and Paul, I would guess, got into it from a certain genre standpoint, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's just that, you know, after a while, we, we you know, or maybe it was quickly, who knows, we, we watched other films, other genres, and, you know, we started to go with the culture to look at the culture, to look at the city, to look at, you know, how the people lived. And that attracted us maybe just as much as, you know, seeing a guy fly through the air or, you know, get his hand cut off or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, it, in my opinion, you know, in my opinion is not the correct one, although uh, I'll never admit it online. Um, <laughs> my opinion, I think Hong Kong cinema, I think every country's cinema is actually based on... Um, culture you know that's that's what i think i think you know and not just you know not just like stereotypical culture i'm talking about like popular culture um things that are happening in a city in a territory in a country at that time that is what defines what a country's a world cinema i mean a territory cinema is um, and you know i think the hong kong films of the 80s and 90s you know even though they were sold elsewhere they really were you know based on a local culture uh, popular stars. Popular stars is a big deal. You know that that defines a lot of it. Popular stars, um, trends, uh, popular genres. That's how it works. Uh, since there are really no popular genres in Hong Kong anymore, and the popular stars kind of exist, but they're all really old. 
you know, or their manufacturing aren't really popular. It's, it's hard to really define it from there. So then you just have local culture films that deal with really things that, you know, make sense or, or are, uh, you know, are uh, specific to Hong Kong. Well, so, Kevin, yeah, Kevin result, brought up a good point where he mentioned, you know, that a lot of the talent, a lot of the crews, a lot of the, the production people are now going up north to work. Um, and it brings to mind this idea of sort of a brain drain when, you know, you have factors that pull people out of, out of the area and then it, it leaves sort of a void. You don't have talent here. And that's reflected in the cinema. And I get the sense, or, or I seem to remember that a similar thing happened right around the post-97 era. You started getting films like The Matrix and, you know, uh, you, you had Chow Yun-Fat starting to make English films. And it seemed like a lot of the key talent, you know, started to export itself to Hollywood. Now we have a lot of the sort of the post-millennial key talent exporting itself north. Do you think that that's also a problem here? I, I think that was a problem in the 90s when, when filmmakers, they started realizing Hong Kong is not enough anymore. That Hong Kong films, the money that they make and the potential or the future that they have just wasn't enough for these stars and they wanted to go, you know, they realized that they could make more money abroad. I think John Woo and Chan Fast started this trend by realizing or by showing that Hong Kong is not enough anymore, that it is okay to expand beyond. And with China opening up, that just gave a lot of these filmmakers and professionals who weren't good enough to make it to Hollywood uh, a new place to go. Uh, we saw in the late 90s, early 2000s, that, that Hong Kong was experimenting with these uh, Hollywood Imitate, imitations, you know, action films like Dandan Torpedoes or you got Purple Storm and they were just trying to imitate Hollywood. And when they when it didn't work out, they realized that they could use the same product and be impress people in China. And that's what I think, at least. And that's, that's where they went. Um, and also you have to realize where John Wu and Chang Fat are now. In China. China. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Not in Hollywood. Actually, Hollywood has been a failure. For uh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong uh, filmmakers, outside of Jet Li and Jackie Chan, you know, I mean, they're both successes and they pull enough off the video market or whatever they can still work there. But, but um, outside of them, Charlie, uh, John Woo, you know, he had major problems. And, well, he and had, in fact, I mean, he had he a never, pretty good run with uh, some of his films. I mean, Hard, yeah, good run, but, hard you know, Target think, and Face Off, and um, but his run ended around the same time as Mission Impossible too. Yeah. I think he had, I think he had good results, but he didn't. I don't think he could work within the system, especially when you came from Hong Kong, where, you know, the, again the phrase "anything goes," where you could do anything, where you could pick up the camera and do and do multiple jobs. We go to somewhere like Hollywood, it's so systematic. A Hong Kong filmmaker, a Hong Kong actor, might would not adjust there, you know, normally. I think. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard similar. I've heard interviews from people who've who've worked in both, and they've said that. You know the Hollywood system, the union system is very problematic in that you know you're even if you've got a guy on standby who knows how to use a camera, he's not allowed to because he's not part of the cinematographer union. You know, and and there are just so many limitations that it can become frustrating for people who've worked on the outside. I guess. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's uh, the person who said that was uh, Andrew Lau when he did the flock. 
he cannot be cinematographer and director on his own film. You know, in, in Hong Kong, everything he does, he's he's always doing both. He's always the uh, DOP and always the director. But in Hollywood, he can't do it, and he's not even allowed to touch the camera. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's people don't like it. Uh, uh, they're used to working the way they like to work, and also, you know, he had a really bad experience with Flock. Anyway, the film was taken away from him in the end. Well, what do you think about? Um... You know, we we were talking about the the notions of stardom, and as Ross was mentioning, I sort of came in in the late '80s and '90s, and one of the things that really, you know, attracted me was the really dynamic stars of that era. You had the the Heavenly Kings, you had people like Anita Moy, um, the, the these people who really seemed larger than life, and were con- a continuous presence. In, in many ways, in a lot of the films, and a lot of the top films, and you'd see them in three or four, sometimes five films a year, and you don't really seem to have that now. I mean, you do have a current generation of stars, and you do have up-and-coming people, but I don't get the same sense of stardom that the 80s and 90s seem to have and seem to generate. Do you think that that's in part problematic of the system, or have we have have people of my generation or sort of who tied themselves to the 80s and 90s films become too old? Is there like a a generation gap now? That's a good question. Uh, actually, I, I think, well, this is... I think... I think it's kind of uh, the problem with the shrinking market. Because even back then, you know, back during the 80s and 90s, the area you're talking about when you have the Chinese fats. You know, Chinese fat is one of the most dynamic stars of his era. You can you can do anything, um, you know, well, pretty much comedy, drama, action, whatever. Um, so you had him, but you had also a lot of people who were just imitators of Chinese fat, if you recall. Yeah, you know, who, who they tried to groom to be somewhat similar, and you know, a lot of times it was a failure. And you know, we remember Andy Lau, we remember all the Heavenly Kings, we remember the Maggie Chungs and Nina Moyes. But how many of the, the stars do you just forget? There are so many stars or wannabe stars or, you know, actors who tried to make it in cinema. And, you know, they appeared in a lot of films, but they, they could never match that stardom. We don't even think about them anymore from the 80s and 90s. You know, I, I, I could name some names, but I'm afraid I'll insult people. But, um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, but that's like, like what about uh, Thomas Lamb Chofi? Who remembers him? Exactly. Although I did see him <laughs> once in TST. Um, you know, Alex Fong Chung's son was once intended to be like a Chinese fat clone, you know, and he carved, carved his own career out, but he's always a supporting player. He's never, he's usually not the star of his films, correct? Yeah. He, he couldn't be a Chinese fat. So, you know, there are guys, you know, so he's a character actor in the end. And what about like the fall of Max Mock? <laughs> yeah. You know, does anyone really care about Max Mock anymore or remember him for the great, you know, he was actually kind of a star at a certain point, but he really just dropped off. Now no one ever like thinks about having Max Mock retrospectives. <laughs> I blame yeah, I blame all... China's last eunuch. Yeah, <laughs> but th- there are like all these stars you don't talk about because everyone has forgotten them. We we remember the big, the Heavenly Kings. Remember the the, the Tony Lungs. You remember uh, Leslie Chung. Remember Chinese Fad. You know, and then you know you remember uh, Sam Hoy, George Lamb, and you know even they have fallen off a bit. It's like the Dodo Chang thing. Who really talks about Dodo Chang anymore? Hong Kong, we really still care about her, but to the West, she's like nobody. Yeah. You know, we still remember Maggie, you still remember Nita, but Dodo Cheng does, gets no, no, no discussion. And she was a huge star at the time. Yeah. So 
what you're looking at is you're looking at like the you know and uh, you know they were huge stars and then you know then below them you know you had uh let's say uh the Sandra Angs the uh Ching Miao's you're not really a great actress until she did the Stanley Kwan movie, but you know she appeared in a ton of films mainly because she was Wang Jing's girlfriend. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you had Ching Miao, you had um, you know second tier starlets. You know you could say like Jackie Chan's wife May Lo, um, Fenny Yoon, um, you know Loretta Lee, who had to turn to category three anyway. And then you get the third tier starlets. You just you know head down. So there were so many. And we just have forgotten so many. Nowadays, it's like we still have a few of those dynamic stars who are watching anything. We have Louis Koo, like right now, right? Yeah. If you look at the shrinking market, you know, Louis Koo is all the Heavenly Kings, Chai and Fat, <laughs> and both Tony Lunks. Okay? Yes, I know. And uh, so who's our Max Mock? Uh, I don't know. Um, maybe Alex Fong? Alex Sun, maybe. Yeah, the swimmer, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's him. So, but you know what? I think it's what's happened between that. You know, you have stars like Leslie and the Heavenly Kings and Anita Mui. They had a quality, certain mysterious quality that made them stars. That made them, you know, a figure that you know that make them weren't one of us. But then now the paparazzi's and uh, the way the internet works true. and the gl- and globalization. Hmm? Also true. Yes. Uh, nowadays, there's no privacy. Stars can't develop a mystique because. There's no room for it, you know. They just they just get outed by uh, the you know invasive media and uh, you know nosy uh, nosy fans. Um, you know the, the fans were crazy back then too, but they didn't have the means with which to uh, to obsess that they do now. Yeah, and uh, you know it it, it kind of ruins things. You know, stardom is is kind of is fun in its own way. Celebrity is ridiculous in, in, in my opinion, and that's why I make fun of it so much on my website. And make fun of the notion of celebrity, but you know it's nothing against these people. You know they have their lives, and you know some people can handle it really well, like Andy Lau. But Andy Lau is just so rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, and right now, instead, we got these China stars who have these similar, I guess, quality when when portraying their personal life. Like, how often do we see, you know, Fan Bingbing, Li Bingbing, uh, Zhou Xun, or 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 um, Zhang Jingchu, or even the male stars? How often do we see them? Like, these Chinese stars in the, you know, maybe we see them at airports somewhere or some, some paparazzi photos, but we rarely, they still had that kind of mystique that, that kind of echoes what those 80s stars have. Unlike, you know, Charlene or um, the twins have today or the, the EG stars. Well, actually, ironically, Louis Koo still seems to possess some mystique. <laughs> yes, yes, Louis Koo is. I think that's one of the reasons why Louis Koo does work because he, he is so he is he is kind of had that star quality that we don't know much about him and that he is kind of above you know us. Except you know, for he likes definitely. action figures. He likes action <laughs> figures, and Star Wars. Yes, but um, he has a warehouse of them. Yeah, I really got to visit that place, but I'm totally like you know going off the subject. But anyway, <laughs> the the thing is. Um, uh, yeah, maybe people will, will will think this is being disingenuous, but I just think it's because China is a big place. <laughs> you know, they can get away in Hong Kong. You cannot get away. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, everyone knows where you live. You know, you just you cannot you can you know if if you're popular, you are followed all the time. And a lot of the stars that we have now are really coming from a different area. They're really coming from uh, I hate to say it, nepotism. Mm-hmm. You know, people who have really been given star status. And so they like come the with Aegis. a certain sense of entitlement that a lot of stars don't. 
yeah, maybe this is also really bad general, uh, generalization. But you know Louis Koo. What did he do before he became an actor? He was in jail, right? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> he was in jail, and you know he ran hung with the wrong crowd. He doesn't have a sense of entitlement. You know, I, I'm I'm betting. You know, I don't know him, but I'm betting that he is very grateful for what he has. He treats his star status with the respect that a lot of other stars, Edison, yeah, Mont, <laughs> the guy has handed everything. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, even even actors like Andy Lau and Tony Leung, they they slumped for years in TV before they they became film yeah. actors. So so yeah, that that sense of entitlement I think also exists in this generation. Another perfect example, Nicholas Say. You know, you know he's a good actor and he's matured, but at the same time, you know, he was given his star status. Yeah, he was a star when he was like five. Well, he he's he's sort of like a, you know, royalty and and that exactly. Sense. You know, it's it's different. Uh, the twins, you know, Julian came from a well-to-do background. You know, mm-hmm. everyone everyone's connected in certain ways. And how many people really are come up from nowhere and uh, can you know and, and don't have that sense of entitlement that comes with their star status? Very few people, especially now. So shrinking market, you have you know this this whole second generation thing. Um, I was going to say, if you're going to look at more of the successful Hong Kong actors, you know, who you think possess kind of quality, a lot of them seem to treat their star status with uh, a respect that you don't, you know, that is, you know, probably the same respect that others give it in the 80s and 90s. Mm. Um, and this is just my opinion also. Yeah, I think that's a good point. What do you think about, you know, and this is a subject we've touched on when we've looked at certain films, but... You know, we'll go out and see a film by someone like Patrick Kong, and we'll look at it and we'll think it's not very good. And at the same time, it will do gangbusters, you know, at least in the context of modern films doing gangbusters uh, at the box office. And do you think that there's maybe a, a disconnect now with, uh, you know, older generation filmgoers and, and young people and what they want out of their local cinema? For sure. I mean, you look at Lust Caution. Um, despite being category three, that movie brought out a lot of older film goers who finally felt like there was a, a film that adults could see, unlike, you know, the Patrick Kong films, which were half built on, um, you know, shallow depictions of youth romance and the other half playing on the uh, rumors about the stars. Um, I think there is definitely a disconnect between that. And that's why, also, that's why Echoes of the Rainbow did so well, because, again, it brought a lot of the older filmmakers, I mean, the older film goers. But how do we find, I mean, the question is, are there films that would bring out both both uh, demographics anymore in Hong Kong? There are, of course, the same ones that you've mentioned, and also like Infernal Affairs um, did it. But that was eight years ago. Was it? <laughs> well, it still did it. But yes, it was eight years ago. <laughs> um, I think the youth audience now doesn't really look for quality, it's true. They look for something else in films. It's just a I think they look for time. themselves. Hmm? I think they look for themselves. I think they look for. I think they're more nar- narcissistic than say. Uh, well, actually, in general, people nowadays are way more narcissistic. Perfect example is Facebook. Mm-hmm. What is Facebook besides just a celebration of yourself, your page, your photos, your 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 your, your whatever? Facebook is a celebration of yourself. So people are naturally more narcissistic. It's just the way it is. Everyone has a way to just, you know, everyone has a shrine to themselves now online. Um, so yeah. You know, and it's it's true. Another good example of what you talked about is Breakup Club. 
Yeah. yeah, a lot of the local audience here in Breakup Club, they they did they like it because they saw themselves in these really miserable, unlikable characters. Oh, maybe we're getting old. I'm not sure. Huh? Maybe we're getting old. Maybe are we are we looking at the wrong are we the wrong type of audience? Are is such thing as the wrong type of audience for a certain film? Are we the wrong audience now for, well, for know, a certain and, type of film? And we may have, we may have discussed this before, but I start to look at myself as as I you know watch some of these you know these romance trilogies and things that that Patrick Kong's done with Steffi and Alex and and those guys, and I don't see them in the same way that I see romantic comedies from the eighties and nineties when you know Andy Lau and 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 Jackie Chung and others were younger and doing sort of Wong Jing silly comedies, but at the same time I can remember trying to get my my grandparents to watch uh, the John Hughes film, 16 Candles. And that was a film that came out when I was in in high school, what would be secondary school here in Hong Kong. And it was like, you know, that and films like The Breakfast Club were really defining films for people in my generation. And my grandparents couldn't stand it. They would not even sit through it because they didn't understand the language. They didn't, they just, you know, it, it, it wasn't a thing that spoke to them. So sometimes I wonder if I'm going through that same thing where, where maybe I'm starting to be on the cusp of a generation that's not really understanding the cinema of, of you know, the, the post-millennium era now with young people. I like to put myself as the exception to the rule. I mean, I'm 26. I, I think I like to think I'm still in the same generation as Jason Chan and Fiona Sit. But as I'm watching Breakup Club, I, all I see is a narcissistic director you know, who's, who's depicting really miserable or unlikable people. Well, I don't see. Yeah. I do think that, I mean, I think good filmmaking can still be distinguished to be honest. Uh, Patrick Kong is a, is an atrocious director in my opinion. Sorry. He just, you know, no subtlety, just some really just terrible setups. It's just, some of it is just like bad television. Um, a good example is, you know, um, you know, uh, Elf for Love, not Elf for Love, Elf for Lies, the one before, Love is Not All Around. You know, all those scenes of people just sitting there screeching out there, you know, how unhappy they are. And it's just like, why does the other person just tell them to, to like shut it? <laughs> it, 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 it just, it's just not real in any way, shape, or form. And, it's, and it also just it annoys audiences, in my opinion. Yeah, frankly, well, I, in the age of blogs, in, in the age of blogs, everyone has a monologue. Yeah, and I think mean, that's what this Patrick Kong kind of brought out in in his in the way he writes. I suppose everyone gets a monologue. Everyone gets their own blog. Yeah, but in a film, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think it, it's just bad filmmaking. You know, actually, to be honest, Break Help Club I think is much better than practically every single Patrick Kong film ever made. With the exception of possibly Elf for Love, Elf for Lies, which I enjoy for other reasons. Like, man, this is just hilariously weird. But, um, or just like, you know, it's uh, Elf for Love, Elf for Lies is kind of an over-the-top quality that I enjoy. But yeah, it's, it's far from uh, a great film. Um, and, uh, you know, Breakup Club is, is still much more accomplished. Robert Wong is not untalented at all. The problem is, yes, there's a certain narcissism to it. And, uh, and I think that narcissism in the filmmaking hurts the characters because, you know, you can make films about unlikable characters. The problem is that, you know, I think, and this is, you know, I just believe that when you watch a film with unlikable characters, you should be able to judge them for yourself as you're watching. 
or a film shouldn't try to sell them as meaningful. You know, meaning shouldn't in those types of with those types of characters. You, you, how can you like JC was a complete idiot in Breakup Club. Mm-hmm. You know, many people can see themselves in it, but you should actually be looking at it and going, "My God, I suck too." <laughs> but you know, Barbara Wong tried to um, redeem JC in it. Why? Because you know, I guess I, I don't know how he's redeemed. Do you see how he's redeemed? But you know, Barbara Wong sold this whole thing about you know this all having meaning, and you know, and it's not just because she wants to find meaning in the story. It's because she wants her film to have meaning because the film is a reflection of herself. You know, that stuff. If you see it, you just can't really rate it as good. You know, you can't. Uh, it it feels too false, transparent. You know, the film isn't meaningful. It's meaningful because she's trying to make it meaningful, not because it really is. She can't convince us, in my opinion. I think I think there's there's some point that you're to, some truth to what you you say in that you know maybe it is beyond us a little. Maybe the next generation of filmmakers will be exceptionally narcissistic. But you know, and you, but I think how many people are really buying into it? Is Breakup Club really that much of a hit? Mm-hmm. Is everyone out there copying Breakup Club? I don't think so. Not yet. Um, yeah, I think it's too soon to say. But yeah, I think and I. I I like Pan Chan. I don't want to blame him for certain things, but I think his type of n- narcissistic, you know, clever type of filmmaking. I think his he kind of opened uh, opened something here. I think this generation of, of Hong Kong filmmakers. It, it almost seems like they have to be they have to try almost too hard to be narcissistically clever. Uh, that is kind of affected a whole generation. Yeah, but Pan Chan kind of like has his cake and he eats it too. He well, really he does. does it well, I think. He, he, when he does that thing where, you know, he's like, this is clever. You know, sometimes he's almost like, he's kind of like, just like, seems like having a, he's like having a joke at the audience's expense. Sometimes I don't really think he believes it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, at least, you know, his films, it's not always the end-all beat-all in his films, the, the meaning. Sometimes like, you know, when he sh- slams it down your throat like an AV, I mean, you know he was just kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some truth in Dream Home, but in Dream Home it's okay because you know he really the message there is a, a very valid one, and it's not he's not like searching for meaning or trying to find meaning in something where it's not really there. There is some something important in Dream Home, despite the fact that it's kind of buried beneath tons of gore and uh, crazy psycho people. But um, it's it's there, and you know he brings it out okay, and he doesn't sit there and say, "Look, this has meaning." Mm-hmm. Um. You know, the meaning is inherent. He doesn't say the film is meaningful, if you get my point. Mm-hmm. Barbara Wong says her film is meaningful. If I could jump back to a point you were making about, you know, the stars in, in some of the 80s and some of the 90s, where you were saying that for all the, you know, the stars that we remember, the, the Heavenly Kings and, and the Maggie Chungs and so forth, there were tons who we've now since forgotten. Do you think that for for that period the the sheer number of films that were being produced meant that there were a higher number of quality films so it seems like that was sort of a golden age whereas now because there are fewer films produced um you get you know something like a detective d once in you know two or three years or i, I was just thinking in terms of um what was the samo film last year um kung fu chefs Mm-hmm. You know, which I think we in, we would agree that we liked, but as I thought more on that film, it wasn't because it was a great film. It was just because everything else had been so bad. 
<laughs> up to that point that it was refreshing. But if we were to take that film and put it in the context of a lot of the stuff that was coming out, you know, in the 80s or, or the 90s that Samo himself was doing, that would be really farther down on the list, don't you think? So yeah. far, I didn't like Kung Fu Chefs, first of all. <laughs> um, Kung Fu Chefs is enjoyable, but, you know, it's not a great film. And, you know, they would have done it a lot better in the 80s or 90s. Because they would have... Think, um, yeah. I think it was very much like... Like you said, it was a very much like an 80s, 90s production. Um, I mean, that's one thing that might have made us enjoy it a little more than it really was. And I, maybe because Helena Law was the thing behind us. They didn't want to. We didn't want to have too bad of a time, I guess. I, I, I still am okay with it to a certain degree. It, it still has some of that charm. I, I, one thing I don't like is I think filmmaking. Back then, you could make really films really sloppily, and um, you know it was it was acceptable. But you know now you can't do it because people equate um, you know this this type of uh, rough edge production as just being crap out of the gate. So, so you know. They have to like try to create a sense of quality through production values, and if you don't have the budget, you can't do it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like it's like it's like uh, then why try? Then just make something completely fake and completely you know, manufactured and, and go for it. And uh, that's what they did a lot in the eighties or nineties. You know, films just were just so not real. Kung Fu Chef still tries to take place in kind of a real world, ironically enough. <laughs> you know, it just it's just you don't buy it. You know, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, th I think I'm, I'm, this is speaking to specifically uh, Paul. Getting back to your question mm -hmm. about um, the sheer number, uh, my answer to that would be an emphatic yes. <laughs> that um, it's simply the law of averages that dictates it. I get a lot of emails personally, people asking me, "Why do you hate everything?" <laughs> you know, and I, t I tell them, "When only fifty films are made per year, you know, twenty-five of them have to be bad." <laughs> at least and if not 30 to 35 because what is good it's like 30 percent because 70 is a c grade right so mm -hmm. if everything above like 70 percent like everything gets 75 70 points up to 100 points is good you're talking only a quarter of the output basically right yeah so in in a world in a in a, an industry where they only make 50 films that's like 13 films yeah and everything else probably has to be bad. And and we've certainly moved beyond the era of, you know, where if a film came out, if you had a Once Upon a Time in China come out that was a success, you could immediately expect a part two and a part three and a part four. Um, although I guess, you know, Infernal Affairs was kind of the, you know, the sort of early post-millennial exception to that. But we're we're just not in that period anymore, are we? Well, it depends. I mean, who who's making that successful film, though? Um, what is a film that's that successful that they can quickly crank it out? Um, you can't do it with Initial D, which was a, a major success at the time. Because, you know, Jay Chow is a busy man. <laughs> um, yeah, because right now the, the films that are filling the box office are, you know, big blockbusters with really high budget, and there's just no money to crank out another one, or they can't afford it. To, yeah, to crank cranking out initial quickly. D is not easy. Exactly. Infernal Affairs can still be cranked out to a certain extent because, you know, it still is a crime thriller, you know, and uh, with, without massive, massive, you know, uh, set pieces. So, you know, it's just, it just appears on a larger scale than, like, smaller crime films, but, you know, they, they can do it. 
You just can't crank out an initial D. You can't crank out a. Uh, you can't crank out a detective D. Um, it's, it's not possible in this industry. And back to the point about you know more films, you know, equaling more you know good films. The same thing goes for stars. Um, when you make two hundred films a year, you know Andy Lau can only be in so many films each year, even when he has a gun held to his head. Um, so they need other actors to fill these roles, and that may be why you know we had so such a big influx of stars in the eighties and in the nineties. And when 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 filmmaking decreased in late nineties, we just you know didn't really need that many actors anymore, or the star and the market was gonna be oversaturated, and that's why we don't. It yeah. seems like we skipped the generation. Yeah, well, you know, you know how many people? How many people do you, did you think could have made it to movies from TV, but just didn't? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. A perfectly good example is uh, Ada Choi. Actually, she did films in 96, 97, right? 98. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was great in them. You know, she should have been around for ages, but then she went to TVB and she barely appears in films since. Yeah. Um, my, you know, security, better pay for her, regular job. Um, you know, she's one good example of an actress who probably could have done much more on film, but in the end, just stuck with TV because it's, it was easier. Listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Well, also, a lot of stars, you know, like Tiki Chan, they turn to, you know, Chinese TV where again, better pay, yeah. uh, more consistent work. Um, well, yeah, I I was never a fan of Dickie Chung, but okay. Okay, so so my point was, I, I think there's a crisscrossing of stars because um, partly a lot of these Hong Kong actors are going to China to make these shows based on their fame in Hong Kong. Yeah. And my, meanwhile, the SIPA the SIPA um, dictates that I believe half the actors in a in a in a co-production must be from the mainland. So when you have these classically trained actors, you know. Even the Bing Bings, or uh, you got Xu Jinglei, you got Zhang Yinshu, these Zhou Xun, who are actually, or Zhang Ziyi, who are actually trained actors over, you know, people who are pop stars and was never really classically trained. Like, you know, you got Sammy Chang, or you got your, your Charlie and your Miriam. Um, it was almost easy to see why these directors would stick with, uh, or would choose these uh, new mainland actresses for, for their Hong Kong films. Especially when, you know, you got male actors still have your Andy Laos and you still have your your actors, male actors who were trained in the TV period and can still deliver the goods and still have the fame. Um, I mean, that's part of the new... That's another way of, I guess, China seeping into Chinese uh, Hong Kong cinema through talent. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems to me that the... there. It's like you were saying, it seemed to have... It seems there was like a generation that was missed. You know, and that when we look at the big blockbusters that come out in Hong Kong uh, these days, who who's starring in them? You know, it's still Andy Lau, you know, or Jackie Chung coming out of retirement, or you know, you get the occasional Jackie Chan film, uh, which is more and more a, a mixed production, or Jet Li, you know, but you don't see, you you just don't see a lot of the younger generation. 
because they're not old enough. You know, the Sean Yu's and uh, the people of his generation who are who are still acting, they don't seem to have sort of taken up the mantle. And in part, they don't seem old enough. And I, I'm thinking of people maybe like a Eason Chan's generation. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of people, you know, there. It's like you were, they were saying before, um, you and Ross, that Louis Koo is pretty much it. Um, yeah, that's why you got all these new in in China. This is already this whole generation of young male actors who are at that age, ready to to take over. You got your your Alice Chen, Xiao Ming. You got um, even the uglier ones, uh, say maybe um, Xin Honglei or even you know Si Guotao, Han Bo. You, know, you got a whole list of these mainland mainland actors again, trained, uh, professionally trained, and also at that age where they could follow right in you know andy lao and tony learns footsteps mm. and then who else do you have after that maybe after that sean you can come in uh, uh william chan or i mean lewis cool can't like uh, you know again lewis cool like I, the argument with andy lao is that lewis cool can only make so many movies in a year he's already packed uh from whatever he's already packed to a schedule even when he's lifted his uh acting salary to 18 million dollars hong kong dollars or even be per film it's getting harder and harder to afford these guys yeah uh, and that makes and i think one of the some of the one of the things that kind of sparked the twitter conversation earlier was that you know what happened to low budget crowd-pleasing comedies because people can't afford to make them anymore there are no low budget crowd pleasers anymore what they what people wanted was comedies like lover's ear or you know uh something like um a low budget hit. Um, the Joe Ma movies, you know, you got Ikin Chan and, and the you know, Jordan Chan movies. You can't do them anymore because, well, one, Ikin Chan no longer has the, the staying power. And two, any stars that have any clout or any, you know, box office power are raising their salary because China is willing to pay them that much. I think Donnie now takes, um, I think, 20, 30 million RMB per movie. Uh, and you know that's that is on his magic secret service entire budget yeah yeah it just can't afford it's harder getting harder and harder to 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 make low budget films anymore i mean the only kind of low moderate mid budget crowd pleaser that was made this year i could think of is la comedy humane that's because you know chapman toe and Wan cho la i mean how much are you going to pay those guys and after after they make their big mainland blockbuster how much are we going to have to pay for them yeah when we talk about comedies, it doesn't seem like there was there's been a you know a a big fill in I guess in terms of comedic actors. I mean, we had Ronald Cheng for a while who had some popularity and and was was doing fairly well, but he seems to have sort of you know dropped off. He makes the occasional cameo now, um, but he doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot. And that's the uh, nepotism thing talking. His father runs, uh, I believe, one of the major record companies here in Hong Kong. He's setting up Rano to be the next boss. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then, you know, you do have um, Wang Yuming, but he's, you know, he's, or, or Wang Cho Lam, excuse me. He's, um, you know, he's, he's kind of sort of coming off of TVB. He's popular here, but he's not, he's certainly not the standard of. Uh, you know, a Stephen Chow or a Ronald Cheng as yet, maybe that will change. It, so it, it, it you know, it, and for comedy itself, I mean, comedy is something that's kind of weird between Hong Kong and China because Cantonese humor and, and mainland Chinese humor are like two different entities. 
in some sorts. And I, I think the best way you can see things like that is when you look at something like Crazy Stone. And even though Crazy Stone is kind of uh, tapping into Hong Kong-style humor, it still is very much sort of a mainland sensibility with regard to things like timing and pacing and and the, the verbal humor that's being used. Um, yeah, even within, the, even within China, it's about North versus the South. Um, Hong Kong comedies have traditionally done better in southern regions like uh, Guangzhou and um, yeah, where they speak the language or they may be closer to humor. While Feng Shaogang comedies um, tend to do better in the north and not do as well in the south, of course, until, you know, uh, if you're the one. So even within, you know, even between Hong Kong and mainland, but even within the mainland, you still have this regional, regional separation. So yeah, comedy is definitely... Very hard to do when you're a Hong Kong filmmaker and you also have to appeal to a, to a Chinese sensibility. Why don't we talk a little bit about the China problem? And this is sort of an issue that we've touched on to some extent uh, in before in discussions with you know, films like Ip Man and, and others. Um, do you think that this is a problem that's going to slowly start to go away over time? Do you think that... Uh, films will be given more and more leeway or are we going to be looking at you know a, a decade of you know all ghost stories must have a scientific explanation and the bad guy never gets away <laughs> that's a very good question it's like a final uh, exam question right yeah <laughs> I, I don't think uh, china means bad movies um if that's the question I think you can still make good movies with China hanging down your, you know, looking over your shoulder. Um, so you can still tell certain stories. You can't tell the stories that maybe Hong Kong was used to at one point. It, are, they, are, those, are those really the films, the stories that Hong Kong is known for? Maybe, maybe not. Hard to say. But I mean, um, it, under the current guidelines, for example, you would never see another Mr. Vampire story. Because Correct. you can't, you know, depict supernatural unless at the very end of the story, you know, uh, whoever, you know, uh, Chin Karlock or whoever's in the story suddenly wakes up and goes, oh, what a crazy dream, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and then it's totally out of context of the narrative usually when they do something like that. But one thing you yeah. have to consider is you can make them mutants. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, mutants are probably now allowed in China as long as they were born in Malaysia due to Japanese biochemicals. That's correct. Yes. So yes, I don't think that China makes bad movies either, but I think the Chinese government makes potentially good movies bad, and that is something that is um, fairly accepted now. Um, that government censorship has made movie worse than they potentially could be. Um, and, and we gotta, you know, we can't talk about this problem without talking about politics. And the, the reality is that the Chinese Communist Party is now focused on keeping their, their rule. They're not talking about progress anymore, or politically not talking about progress. They talk about economic progress, but they're not talking about political reform, which means they would do whatever they have to do to keep their rule, and that means maintaining the status quo. If keeping film censorship in place keeps their status quo, uh, 
in their view, it prevents their people from acting up or being exposed to inappropriate material. It keeps their it it it, it kind of justifies or it it helps them continue to rule the country. And as long as that that way of ruling the country is still in place, um, I doubt that the censorship is going to change very much. You know, it's always going to be they they'll let it loose a little bit, they'll let it loose a little bit, and then they'll suddenly pull a pullback, just like they've done with less caution. Devil's advocate is that uh, without China, there is no Hong Kong film. You know, so that is that is you know, and and China bankrolls everything at this point. But the, you know that that that's an interesting perspective because at one time, you know, China wasn't par- a part of the the picture, um, and Hong Kong was able to do fine on their own. Um, to that that's actually not true because Hong Kong has never done fine on their own because. Um, Back in the 80s and 90s, you have the Southeast Asian market and you have the Taiwanese market. Both were not very developed in terms of commercial cinema. So Hong Kong film, films could get exported to places like Singapore, Malaysia, ta- um, Taiwan, yeah. and make a good chunk of money. But I guess, now, I guess when, I, when I say they were, they were fine on their own is that they didn't need the support of China. They were able to make enough money both from their internal domestic sales and then from their exports to... Uh, you know, the overseas markets. Yeah, I think when those overseas markets dried up and when the home video market dried up because of piracy, they needed a new market they could, they could you know, still make money off of. And that, that's China now. It's the new middle class. The new middle class that could afford to go to movies. It's this new middle class that would spend 100 RMB on a movie ticket that is keeping Hong Kong cinema alive. And that is what... You know, and Hong Kong, I would call it. I was, and this is a phrase that I've been that's been jumping in my head the whole night. Is that Hong Kong is a hyper commercial cinema? It's not just commercial cinema; it's hyper commercial in that they would shift very quickly to adjust to whatever trend that would help them make money. And that is that, and and, and China is just another way for them to shift. It's just another way. It's just another direction. You you talk about yep. piracy. Um... Don't you think that the piracy problem is worse in China, though? It is, but that's that's best with, among the working class. If we talk about the mid, new middle class, uh, people who can, like I said, who can afford a hundred dollars a ticket, hundred RMB a ticket, they want entertainment and they they can afford to go to these. You know, theaters are built in China. There, the theaters that are built in China is much nicer than the ones in Hong Kong. I've been told, big screens, crisp digital sound, digital projection, uh, comfy seats. In, in very expensive malls that people actually shop in and actually buy things in, is they're, they're catered to people who can afford such activities. They're catered to people who don't need to turn to piracy. Uh, of course, the movie's playing in this theater. Kung Fu Hip Hop 2. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kung Fu Hip Hop 2 flopped in China <laughs> because it didn't cater to the middle class. It catered yeah. to the young... That was the big mistake. It catered to this young audience who can't... Who makes, you know, who makes two thousand RMB a month, and they can't afford the hundred dollars to go watch watch a movie. They would just end up, you know, downloading the movies. They're making these youth movies for people, essentially for young people to download. And you know, they think that it would work as well in Hong Kong. You know, where young people actually you go to the movies as, as as leisure or as a leisure activity. It doesn't work that way in China. Um, if you want to make money in China, you have to make. Big blockbusters. We're talking Detective D. We're talking about Legend of Chen Jin. We're talking about um, the Message. Even um, blockbusters that would 
like in Hollywood, would reach across multiple demographic, preferably the middle class, people who could afford to go to movies. Go to the movies is a leisure activity. The young people do not do that in China. And that's why you see more of these big blockbusters like Detective D. Um, uh, again, all those titles I mentioned, because they're, they are, you know, broad, appealing movies that would attract a lot of people, especially Aftershock. What do you think is the new wave of cinema? Where, where do you think that's coming from? Because, I mean, if we, if we say that Hong Kong was definitely riding the wave in the 80s and the 90s, uh, some people pointed to South Korean cinema, uh, you know, the sort of the post-millennial um, era. Is there is there a new wave of cinema coming from somewhere in Asia now? A new wave of cinema. Um, I think the Hong Kong. I think Hong Kong is trying to um, follow the Korean route. The Korea, the South Korea has been a very very um, successful example of where government has been able to step in and help cinema develop. Japan, not so much. Uh, Japan, everyone is talking about now the the dying indie indie cinema, um, which is sitting right between um, you got the hyper commercial stuff and the really really low budget artsy stuff. The dying indie cinema. Um, Hong Kong government is trying to do this with the Hong Kong Film Fund, which is um, the whole deal is that they get forty percent of the budget to. Um, and I and I I want to clear say this really clear. They're they're just saying that the films are only for commercial films, commercial films, um, commercial appealing films that have at least a producer or at least a director that has done two films. Um, so you have films like uh, Madol, the third Madol movie. You have films like um, The Comedy Humane. You have films like uh, Lovers Discourse, which is coming out. These fairly commercially appealing films that are getting the money but no chance for younger filmmakers because they're looking for commercial films that would make money they're trying to revive again it kind of pushes this whole Hong Kong cinema being a hyper commercial cinema thing um, and that's kind of as far as we as far as I, I can see that's the kind of only hope quote unquote hope we have in Hong Kong cinema um, as far as a new wave of Asian cinema uh, Taiwan is going through a resurgence, very slow resurgence, I think. Um, some people are looking to places in Southeast Asia, like maybe Singapore or Malaysia, but they have not popped as quickly. I think Thailand was once talked about. Um, but, um, I have a question here. Yeah. Um, but but what, is the, what is the point of reference um, in talking about... Uh, you know, I mean, who, who who are the people who are judging what's uh, what's what's the new wave of cinema? I, I personally, I think if you talk about new wave, so-called new wave of cinema, new new cinema, I think festivals, uh, whatever festival um, programmers catch. Um, I think I think you know every few years you have a festival who who, who credit themselves as someone who caught this certain wave. I think last time was Malaysia. Uh, before that, someone caught the Korean wave, and before that, it was the Japanese wave, or before that, it was Hong Kong. Um, before that, it was China. Yeah, that was China. Yeah, I think China commercial cinema might be the new so-called quote unquote the new big thing in Asia. Uh, I think the question is will. Will China become the Hollywood of Asia? Will China become the main supplier of commercial films in the Asian region? Yeah, I, I think. I think. But thing is, though, I, I think the discussion is kind of 
false in a way because you know in some ways you know you you are just looking at a this real outside perspective looking in so i mean in the end i think each cinema has to just depend on itself and then do you think the asia do you think asia is is you know asian countries are able except for india korea japan do you think though other than those three countries are any any other region in china uh, in asia able to do that to be self sufficient actually i don't think korea can do it cuz korea needs its government to do it mm-hmm. besides that then you're screwed <laughs> um cuz yeah uh I, I don't think korea really counts and korea does it as much for national pride as getting other people to respect them from out from outside you know they they love the fest attention you know that Mm-hmm. They, it's it's as much about them about having national pride as it is about keeping their cinema going, and you know already there's been some turn there with you know them handing over more screens to Hollywood and so on and so forth. I don't think Korea should be really be in that discussion. I think really Japan and India is where it is. Um, but again, then you Japan, you have the the declining mid budget films. But um, but in truth, Japan can still support its own cinema. Just as India can support its own cinema, they don't need to export. Neither mm-hmm. country really needs to export to make the money. I'm so not sure there's some the films next, that require it. Hmm? So, do you think the next next one to do so will be China? And look at AfterShock. Look at I think you know but China didn't need to boxes. export AfterShock. I think I think China is in a way kind of there too, because um, their people locally are watching their films. Not all films, but they're watching their films. Um, it's just you know in in a, in a place like Japan, you're lucky because you know you have an audience for many types of films. But yes, then of course you're squeezing out the indies now. But there, that I mean, as I understand it, we were talking about this earlier. China is not sort of a you know it's it's not an open playing field per se. Um, you get a film like Avatar that comes in under the quota system, and you know, it, it does gangbusters, but then at the same time, they'll do some manipulation, they'll give out tickets, they'll do whatever, so that a film like The Founding of a Republic seems to do equally well. Um, but but that, that I can't speak to. I mean, we, we don't really know what happens. We, we know some of that happens. Uh, by all appearances, China is doing it. Yeah. Doing what Japan and India is doing. Yeah, they may be just fudging all the figures just to make themselves look good. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's certainly a lack of transparency in the Chinese cinema industry. We don't have daily, even weekly, uh, reliable box office figures. I mean, the stuff that I tweet from uh, Chinese news sites. Um, at one point, another website, someone runs another website, told me that hey, these numbers don't match up. Um, even you get reports from these news sites saying you know the numbers that theaters are reporting and the distributors are reporting aren't matching up. Again, you have uh, things like product placements. You have things. Oh, well, okay. If they have things like you know free tickets and 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 distributors buying up shows to give it to their sponsors and things like that, I, I think there's a certain lack of transparency in Chinese cinema that may impair its its growth. <laughs>
I guess if if I was going to throw out sort of a final question, um, do you think, do you, or do you foresee, do you guys foresee that in the future, if China was to start to relax some of its restrictions, uh, that it would become sort of the dominant force in a in the Asia region for film production? Do you think that it would be widely consumed? You know, if it, it and and again, we're starting to look at higher and higher quality productions coming from there. But if you know they released some of their narrative restrictions, if they started to say, well, maybe the bad guy can get away with it once in a while, and maybe we can start to look at some supernatural stuff, and that's that's okay, and not every film needs to be, you know, uh, gung ho with nationalism, and not every film needs to be about the founding of the republic kind of an idea do you think that they would really start to usher in a new era for chinese cinema um for me it's no because one as i said earlier they're not going to lift the restrictions um and if they were themes like the nationalism stuff they come they're commercially appealing people have been educated people or do have that kind of uh, 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 mind, uh, you know, masses have that kind of uh, mindset. Um, if we're bringing it back to Hong Kong cinema, the question, I guess, should be what role will Hong Kong cinema play in it? And well, if Hong Kong cinema is going to play a role in it, obviously it will. It's what kind of role Hong Kong cinema will play with it in it? And should Hong Kong cinema be glad to be riding on this bandwagon of, you know, China? China, China wave in Asia. Well, for me, actually, the the answer is is also kind of no. It says I don't think if you're talking about China becoming Hollywood East and actually distributing their films all over Asia, yeah, I, I don't see because the films that are successful in China don't necessarily translate anywhere else. Mm. Um, even when like the like the message. Um, I don't think translates as well as people think it does or want it to. So, uh, if Kevin says that you know people are programmed to like this nationalism, and you know even if the bad guy can get away with it sometimes, does that mean your film's going to be a blockbuster in another country? I don't think so. It just means that you know maybe you'll get more of those films made, but will they be the ones that are making the money overseas? Probably not. In in fact, if 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 China. Limited, I mean, opened up its market entirely, as, of course, you know, um, Hollywood would like uh, the World Trade Organization to force China to do, right? Like, Hollywood is pushing the uh, WTO to, hey, China, open it up so we can send more films to you. Yeah. I, I mean, at that point, you wouldn't kill off Chinese cinema because Chinese cinema would still be strong just because, uh, you know, the probably people would still want to watch these films because they really speak to them in a way, like Aftershock. But, but you'd also be squeezing out uh, chances that people would want to make those smaller films that would you know, change how we think about Hong Kong cinema or Chinese cinema. Because mm-hmm. in the end, you know, movies are money. You know, people, a lot of this stuff is going on in Hollywood, too. People say you can't make mid-budget stuff anymore, dramas. Um, you either make really cheap stuff that can you know, make a quick buck, or you make... Uh, mega, mega, mega huge temples that you can sell overseas. Um, 
So, you know, if, if money is the driving factor, you know, I just don't think that China can do it. China is not worldly enough in a way you could say. Hong Kong's not going to want to make all these new types of films. Some people will, but the, the money is, is going to be so little for them because all the money is going to go to a film they think they can sell to China. Yeah, again, it's all down to whether film professionals can feed their family. It's not about artistic integrity anymore. It's, I think Hong Kong cinema's rarely been about artistic integrity. It's about people being able to have regular work and be able to feed their families. And yeah, it that's, was never about artistic integrity. It was just, it was just you know, luckily enough, this hyper-commercial cinema, as you put it, was able to uh, entertain people overseas. People found it and went, wow, this stuff is great. Maybe we don't really live in an era of hyper of of that type of uh, creativity, just because things are so globalized. Yeah, you know everything is has to appeal to everyone, and you know, how can you make a film that you know is is honest anymore? Because maybe these things can only occur in societies that are in places that are more closed off, that aren't out there, uh, you know, that that isn't uh, isn't so uh, globalized, that aren't so globalized. Where everyone has access to every single piece of information, every single form of entertainment available. Uh, All right, North Korea. Well, yeah, North Korea, yes, um, <laughs> but but they have another problem there. Um, yeah, and but the, your your point about the WTO too, is well taken, which is, you know, it's it's interesting that Hollywood is is pushing that pressure to get more and more distribution in China, and I doubt that they would want sort of the reversal of flow you know it's it, but i don't think they feel threatened they would never think that people in america want to watch chinese films yeah it's never going to happen um uh, no but you know come on i mean their track record with subtitles is just sick yeah um, uh they 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 you know they're, they're really just uh you know american movie going but if, audience if the- i mean it it does beg the question sort of if hong kong was to or, or not Hong Kong, if China, if mainland China was to sort of, you know, maybe start working more and more with Hong Kong in a sort of Hong Kong style, opening up some of their restrictions and, and making more productions, more commercial productions, that people in China, people in Hong Kong, people in Asia would not be as interested in Hollywood anymore. No, I don't think, I don't think China will ever have the, the production value or the, the talent or the creativity to under to to overtake Hollywood. I Hollywood. I'd be careful, you know. I, I, the British were saying very much the same thing, you know, right after they took over Hong Kong when they were negotiating for the for the for the land lease here. They they you know they did not have in any concept in their mind of that time that China would ever be strong enough to enforce the lease, and yet. In 1997, that's exactly what happened. Um, well, that's that's politics. I don't. I don't think Chinese. I think Chinese cinema has a certain thing that because they have to please six billion people, the six billion people of their own culture. You know, like I said, even even within that six billion people, they already have to deal with regional separate. You know, separation. You know, regional taste. Well, sure, but so I mean, would... in in Hollywood, you have a much bigger, diverse population. Sure, it's predominantly white, male, Anglo, um, but you have minorities, you have different genders, you have different sexualities. Yeah, but, um, the problem is that the money is not there to feed. Uh, to I mean, how many minorities in in the states, for example, can really support their own cinema? Asian America isn't doing it. My God, mm-hmm. you know, there's. there's 
um, African American cinema has their own, but you know they can't they can't fund huge blockbusters. All those films have to be made on the cheap. Yeah. Um, it's it's just yeah you know I, Hollywood is kind of brainwashed the world. Um, I, I think in China general Lucy people Lucy. like big dumb movies, <laughs> and <laughs> nobody makes bigger or dumber movies than Hollywood. So you don't think China could ever yeah, China start making ever big dumb movies too? I don't think China's ever going to have money to to make bigger and dumber movies in America. They'll make dumber movies, but I don't think they'll have money to make bigger movies in America. The thing is, you know, I, I think the idea that any of these uh, any of these films from Asia, for example, can really go and make an impact in the West, like a real big impact, and suddenly just become a fixture on uh, you know in the cinema, in an actual cinema, is is kind of just false. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, when you say a fixture, are you looking at from the technological side, like an Avatar or a Star Wars, or? Well, no, not from the technological side. I'm thinking about you know just just well just the realistic ability to make money to get people in like the West, you know, Europe and and uh, and the U.S., especially North America, to to watch these films in the cinema. If you have to choose between Hollywood and and, and one of these other films, it just doesn't work. You know, I just don't think the audiences are sophisticated. As, uh, as audiences are never going to be that sophisticated. You don't think that there would come a day when the cinema in China could approve itself in terms of quality, in terms of budget, and and so that now the audience has a choice: Do I go see the latest, you know, three D Journey to the West, which has outstanding special effects, or do I go see, um, you know, Star Wars Nine? Uh, and I don't want to see Star Wars Nine because it's nothing to do with things I relate to now. I have I have a cinema a cinema of my own that's of equal quality, equal production value in my own language, and uh, I think I'll choose that instead. But uh, I just don't think the money is there. Yeah. Well, let's uh, think about. Well, I don't last... think the audience is there. The audience will never be there because because you know it's just uh, especially in the West, you know, everyone is, has become they, they, you know they, they really lost a lot of culture. Let's think about this. The last Asian film that I can remember that had a similar Hollywood budget or, or a budget similar to Hollywood and tried to do, you know, the whole, you know, appealing to the global global thing was Dragon Wars from Korea. You know, and how good was that film? <laughs> they still need white people. <laughs> that film yeah, had they still need white people. Yes, they still need white people. It still need to take place in LA. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just because to to do that global thing, Chinese, the Chinese or Asian filmmakers in general believe that they must imitate Hollywood. That they have, I don't think they have any way to to go beyond that. To go beyond, you know, making something groundbreaking that would break into the West. Because filmmakers in the West, they don't, or, or moviegoers in the West, they're not interested in, you know, whenever they see something from China or the East, they think foreign cinema, uh, art house, or Asian extreme. That kind of stereotype is hard to is hard to wash away because and even then those are all there's even then those are all just small uh, uh, niche cinema yeah. niche cinema fans. But in part, it, I think I think the industry is kind of hamstrung because it's not commercial. You know, it's still state funded for the most part. Um, it doesn't understand the commercial models that were brought about by things like you know sequels, uh, starting with Planet of the Apes. And, you know, massive franchising with things like Star Wars. 
But if they learned that, if they started to do that, and they could see a revenue return from that, and that would certainly make producers and manufacturers happy, I think you could start to turn things around. Um, you, you already have Hollywood stealing a lot from Asia as it is. I mean, look at all the remakes, uh, you know, Infernal Affairs, the, 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 the Grudge movies. Um, you know, uh, I'm surprised they haven't tried to do a, a remake of The Host, you know, just remo- right. moving the, 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 the Asians and putting in a bunch of uh, blonde, you know, Baywatch type of people. Um, I, I seriously think that if, you know, and, and I know that Lu- we've joked about this before, Louis Ku said he wanted to do uh, a Chinese Star Wars. What if somebody came along and did that? And it was, you know, super, and it knocked people's socks off, and it started... But is it going to be in Chinese, or is it going to be in English? Yeah, it's going to be in Chinese. Of course it's going to be in Chinese. But it's going to go around, and it's going to play well in Japan. It's going to play well in Southeast Asia. It might even play well in Europe, where, you know, English is not the first language of a lot of people. But it will never play well in the United States. But is, that, last... is, that, the, is that a must? I mean... Yes. Can, can a cinema can a cinema yes. do well in other parts of the world without the United States? I hate to say it, uh, the America is the center of pretty much all popular culture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look at the last um, Chinese Chinese language film that did well. That was a hit in America. That was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. What that movie did, it did not break any cultural stereotypes about Chinese. It played with Western. Western elements in the characteristics and the char- characters and the characteristics and certain parts of the story, but it also enforced the whole you know Chinese kung fu stereotype. It played into that along with Western elements, and that's the only reason why that film made a hundred million dollars in the United States. And you know, another part of it is also you know they were hamstr- they're also hamstrung by you know uh, it's true executives are not smart enough or don't trust them mature enough. Look what happened when they tried to bring Infernal Affairs to America; they ended up just like burying it on two screens. Yeah. Because they couldn't decide what to do for the longest time. Shaolin Soccer, huge example. And even then, you know, it, it was never going to, it just, you know what I'm saying. It's just that, you know, America's pop culture and America's, uh, you know, pop, yeah, America's popular culture really is uh, the center of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and even within Asia, one, China still has to beat India. For in terms of global domination or at least at least exposure in the West, and two, even in Asia, there's too much separatism among the countries, or among the you know some people would say it's the same culture or stem from the same culture, but even in Asia, there's too much politics and too much different culture and different uh, conflicts going on to make some sort of Asian cliff that really well in Japan is because the the original material, the Free Kingdom story, is popular in Japan. Um, For reasons of its own, not because, you know... Yeah, not because of the film itself. Yeah, like, if, if, if China made their Star Wars, for example, would it have the same Joseph Campbell uh, hero crap going on? The whole same father-son issues? All the same little things that, uh, that, uh, that you know, made Star Wars such a uh, touchstone for a generation? Well, it, I mean, those, a lot of those ideas, I think, came out of, you know, American culture, Western European culture. But perhaps China could do a similar thing, tying it to Confucian ideals or to ideas that have spread throughout Asia to make it, you know, a dominant success in the Asia region. 
And that would be, you know, enough to get a ball rolling. And then you start, you know, selling lunch boxes and action figures and, and you know, the whole nine yards. And it starts from there, you know. It, it, it starts to really build a dynamic industry. Because Hollywood, the Hollywood of today, you know, with everything that it does in terms of technology, I think is still firmly rooted in co-coordination with all the other stuff that goes on, the toy sales, all the all the aftermarket stuff. And when you look at Hollywood before all that sort of came into play in the in the 70s, it was it was completely different and it wasn't really the dominant force that it is globally. Yeah, it only today. became it's so in the blockbuster era. After again, Jurassic then, Park. Again, then the are the rest of Asia willing to let the Chinese cinema dominate their own cinemas. Yeah, again, but why, Koreans, would, why wouldn't they? They they already the let they already let male white Anglo cinema do it. I mean, why not is, why not let something that at least is a little bit more culturally proximate? Maybe maybe China will be more obnoxious about it and piss them off. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and and it is kind of the way it is. I mean, you you know, Americans have I'm not sure how to explain how Hollywood was gotten in, but again, I can tell you that Koreans, they have their own cinema. There's no room for any more cinema other than Hollywood and their own. Same with Japan. You have Japanese cinema and Hollywood cinema, and then you got the little foreign niche thing going, you know, except for, you know, big films like yeah, Rick, but, which had I mean, Japan money. That, 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 those kind of things come and go, don't they? I mean, for a while, Korean cinema, Korean TV dramas were super hot here. You know, it was all it was all the rage. Um, don't you think trends like that can just change over time? But I don't think Hollywood is a trend. Hollywood is not a trend. It's it's become the status quo. I think hmm. it the way the way that they're they're financing this, the way they cover regions, uh, they've set up offices in these countries. China has not been able to do that. China still relies on the film market circuit, selling films to local distributors. Hollywood has gotten so big. That they're now setting up their own distribution network in regions. Yeah, everything's day and date. Exactly. Example. Everything's day and date. Exactly. There are no more local distributors. Rarely any more local distributors for, for American cinema anymore, unless for the small small studios like Summit or something like that. Now the big studios, Warner Brothers, Fox, um, um, Paramount, Disney, they all do their own distributions, and that's what helped them dominate these 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 markets. Direct distribution. China has not worked out that model yet because they're still trying to expand their own distribution models and they're still relying on film markets to sell their films abroad. And that means that means relying on distributors like Miramax uh, and local distributors who don't exactly know what to do with these, this foreign commercial film that can only be put in art house cinemas. Hollywood did a good job of it. Yeah, they, they did kind of slowly take over like that. Mm-hmm. So but it didn't happen overnight. Yeah, but I guess we should bring it back to, I guess, Hong Kong cinema then. What... I like to argue that I think Chinese cinema needs Hong Kong cinema's experience and technique to pull off any sort of regional or global dominance. Um, and in that way, I, I guess Hong Kong cinema or Hong Kong film workers are still, are still uh, relevant. Um, well, of course, because, you know, all those Chinese uh, film... Uh... Chinese film professionals are only allowed to see certain films. <laughs> so they can't really broaden their horizons. Like, wow, everything's going to be got to be like Aftershock or Super Typhoon. 
Um, yeah, you know, you need to be able to uh, expose yourself to a lot more than just uh, the, uh, the Kool-Aid cinema. <laughs> if you want so, to, uh, you have to know what's bad before you can make what's good. So then is that, is that the only way that Hong Kong cinema can stay relevant? Is that by helping Chinese cinema uh, become more and more commercial by using their expertise? Or can, what is the future of Hong Kong cinema, so to speak? But, but what is relevance? Gonna... Is relevance measured by its international popularity? If so, then I think Hong Kong is, is going to slowly just become China mm-hmm. to people. If you measure it by its relevance according to international popularity, at film festivals, you know, genre websites and, uh, you know, shelves at your local blockbuster, which are, will be gone anyway. Um, what, uh, yeah, I mean, if you measure it by that, then I think Hong Kong is dead. Well, Hong Kong will be China. What, what do you think about the potential for new technology to come in and maybe revitalize the industry? Um, you can revitalize it as a workshop. Well, not a workshop. It's just like a, a labor force. If Hong Kong can really pull off 3D really well here, then yeah, great. There's another place you can outsource your 3D. People but will even work. China has taken that, that step first with Don Quixote. Yeah. And, you know, Hong Kong, of course, has a you know, the, the, the child's eye. Child's eye. But in the end, it's, uh, it's, you know, all it does is prove that we can do it. So what's going to happen? It's going to happen is like... Uh, some some company is going to be like, man, we need to make our film 3D, but we don't have the money to give it to these people because they're too busy working on Transformers 12. Let's outsource, and then that's it. Hong Kong becomes an outsourcer. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, these are just tech demos in a way. Uh, I I just don't um, I just I think Hong Kong cinema is is going the direction of. Uh, Maybe Taiwan. Um, you know, oh, yeah, you're a little more optimistic than we are. <laughs> well, you know, Taiwan also is has has its issues. Um, Taiwan, <laughs> I'm not I'm not talking in terms of creativity, or in terms of uh, you know what they can do with the cinema. I'm just talking about in terms of popular appeal. Do you think there's that there's some... there's a chance that um, you know things like digital distribution and uh, you know, micro payments for financing and these types of things that new filmmakers are experimenting with. Um, I, I think I think we have that model. It's called YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think filmmakers have tried uh, the film market circuit, like um, Pao Chen, even Dante Lam played that circuit uh, after he finished uh, the Beast Stalker. But they're just the money doesn't come as quickly or come as big as it did it, it does with China. That's why Dante Lamb's uh, his his you know his whole uh, cop film that won't need any China approval that never happened. He ma- he's made two free films since then. Um, Paho Chen has now gone to China because of the big market there. Um, is you know I think I, 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 we can't blame Hong Kong filmmakers for not trying. That's the thing. They have tried. They have tried and they have tried again and they have met with failure. So whenever they, you can't blame them when they see success in China, that they would jump over it. Again, shifting to go to where it they can survive, kind of like cockroaches, I have to say it. But yeah, it's just going to where they can survive, wherever they can survive the quickest and the best, and that's China. So yeah, Hong Kong filmmakers can survive, but Hong Kong cinema is just going to change to something else. Um, mm-hmm. when, I, when I say maybe it'll be like Taiwan one day, it's, it's just like, 
I'm thinking about in terms of the um, the ratio, how much you can uh, can really affect uh, its local audience and uh, and also a foreign audience. Because look look at Taiwan. Taiwan, you know, you still go to a multiplex there, and you got mostly foreign productions, like massively, mostly Hollywood, to be honest. Some European, Hong Kong. It just becomes the same thing. Only you know we still have a lot of Chinese films, but they're really Chinese films. They're not Hong Kong films. And Hong Kong films just become smaller and smaller, and they attract a certain audience. And every year you'll have that one Hong Kong film that, like Echoes of the Rainbow, who that just you know wow people will actually want to go see. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to set off a uh, you know it's not going to set off that new trend that's going to make them make more and more. It's, it's, you know, people will dabble in it and then the returns won't be there because there's going to be copycats and people can't actually, you know, back up their talk with actual box office returns and then you, you fall back to the same position. I think Hong Kong is kind of, that's where it sort of is. Maybe, you know, yes, the product, instead of being, you know, youth films with gay people and piano music, will be youth films about people who cheat on each other. And uh, I'll have backup lovers, <laughs> and, and and just like Steffi, yeah. That's again. It all goes back to the kind of the what how people treat movies here in Hong Kong. People treat movies in Hong Kong as kind of this quick consumption uh, products, something that they can go do it while they're shopping. Um, unlike the, unlike China, where it's like a luxury luxury activity. You know, Hong Kong cinemas, Hong Kong cinemas itself. They're becoming smaller and and you know, in causing more concentrated in busy areas, more and more becoming this part of consumer activity. Um, and as long as Hong Kong cinema, uh, Hong Kong audiences continue to view cinema that way, that that would just quicken the way Hong Kong cinema goes into merging into China cinema because that's the only way commercial Hong Kong cinema will be made. Unless you're making again low budget films about you know backup lovers and young people with, where young people can, can spend money on. I think there'll always be small little pockets of revival. I think one day there'll be a gang film again in Hong Kong that will like get people all excited. <laughs> I think it'll happen. There'll be another Young and Dangerous one day. People will go, wow, this is great. I want to kick ass too and beat up people on the street. Um, yeah, you know, this, those trends will occur again. But, you know, it can never lead, I think, to the type of uh, industry-wide... Uh, you know, um, boom. The type of industry-wide boom or, uh, you know, prosperity that you had in the 80s and 90s. It's just, you know, it's Hong Kong has lost that luster. I think, I think they've, they, they've shot themselves in the foot, too, in some, to some degree, too, because they just chased the money so quickly that they just turned out so much bad product. Um, Hollywood is, you know, kind of at a point where it's self-sustaining because they turn out a lot of bad product. But they, as a result, they have so much product that people view as good. And and, develop, and de- delivers the elements that they like. Um, yeah. So you want to say final question again? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have high hopes for for Hong Kong cinema ever reaching that same. I think you can. You know, it depends. You know, it depends on what you want from the cinema. You know, I, I think I still get a lot of what I want from Hong Kong cinema through watching the current films. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm sitting going, oh crap! I gotta go watch uh, uh, to, to pick up a, a movie that you know is really a Hong Kong film. I gotta watch a comedy humane because, because you know, then, uh, screw that! I'd rather go see uh, Reign of Assassins and Detective D and you know all that stuff. Yeah, you know, it, it, most people overseas are like that now. 
the genre fans. Mm-hmm. You know, locals still like it, but you know, I mean, uh, the you know, uh, Chinese uh, overseas still still will watch the smaller films. But you know, they they how do they do it? Downloading, they're too spread out. You know, Hollywood. If you want it anywhere, you can get it. In in a way, this show is kind of like a message to those you know, the 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 genre fanboys who have. Followed the the eighties and the nineties and and considered those Hong Kong cinema is that that notion of Hong Kong cinema does not exist anymore. You want local products, you are going to have to turn to something like Breakup Club, uh, comedies that don't may not appeal to to those people. Um, they're not going to be able to find you know Donnie will never be in a small police film like SPL or Flashpoint again. Um, from now on, it's big blockbusters with you know. Uh, 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 Almost Hollywood-like blockbuster values. Um, I don't think those. Are, yeah, so that that's that's where it's going right now. That's that is Hong Kong cinema. That's where it's going. And Actually, it also, yeah, I think it, I think it points to the deeper issue of the notion of you know the the, the disappearing identity. You know, the, the that period of Hong Kong cinema, so the so-called golden age, was indicative of the pre-handover colonial era. And we're about a generation out from that being gone forever. Um, because the kids who are growing up now, the kids who are born, you know, post-millennium, they're going to have a certain type of picture of China, uh, what they need to do in terms of, you know, being successful. The language they need to speak is likely going to be Mandarin and will be favored over Cantonese. And I think a lot of that's going to have impacts and fallout for local cinema in you know, the, the coming decade for sure. You know, it doesn't mean there can't be a kind of cinema that represents Hong Kong. I think there'll always be a cinema that represents Hong Kong. It just is not going to be the one that we wanted yeah. or one that we expected or the one we thought we were going to get when we started getting into it because of SBL or uh, A Better Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do, like I said, I, I do think the new new local Hong Kong films are going to be uh, the ones that appeal to the youths. Um, even like Comedy Humane was kind of pushing it. Um, that kind of label itself is a very Hong Kong film, but um, I'm not sure why. But in a way, yeah, it does feel Hong Kong in the way it tells the story. But again, if we're gonna look look at something that reflects local Hong Kong culture, I think we're gonna have to look to the young the youngins for that one. I did have a point that I wanted to bring up, but I didn't bring it up. But it's it's really only a supporting point, and you can't really use it to sum up anything. I was I was gonna say something about how. Um, international attention and distribution and, you know, film festivals actually go some ways towards hurting uh, developing talent. Because, like, you know, how can you ever have someone who just, uh, you know, builds up a great body of work overseas, I mean, here now? Especially, like, a martial artist or someone like that. After one or two films, they, they get cherry-picked yeah. to do, like, you know... Tony Tony Jaw comes to mind. Tony Jaw is the best mm-hmm. example. The guy is dead after four films. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, you know, what has he got left in his tank? Uh, and he's already too self-important. Um, you know, he wasn't trying to 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 make ends meet and sustain popularity in Thailand. He was always trying to impress people overseas. And and you know, in the end, what he does four or five films that took him three years to make some of them. You know, because he's too busy traveling the world. <laughs> you know, going to New York and whatever. It's just, yeah, you know, these guys are going to get, uh, 
you know, Donnie Yen, like you said, is not going to make Flashpoint or SPL anymore. Unless he decides he wants to make a quote-unquote small film. All right, well, I think we need to uh, put a, bring it, the show to a close and sort of wrap things up. Um, if you'd like to find out more about what we're doing or what we're seeing, what we'll be watching, you can visit us over at the website, www.concast.com. Uh, you can also stop by iTunes and leave us a review or two. We'd be happy to hear from you there as well. You can follow each of us on Twitter. You can find my Twitter account over at the website. You can follow Mr. Ma over at twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. That's one word. And you can also find Ross on Twitter as well. Ross, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, I have to find out. Love HK Film. <laughs> yeah, slash Love HK Film. You're correct. Okay, it's so a slash Love HK Film. And sure. if you have a question for the show, you can leave comments for us over on the site. We'll be happy to discuss those here on the air. Or you can send us an audio file via email, and we'll play that on the air here as well. Uh, any final thoughts, gentlemen, before we sort of close things off? You know, it's not to, not to, you know, I think we kind of maybe said some negative things about a lot of things that people really value, film festivals, genre websites, genre fandom, um, you know, film, mar film markets, uh, Hollywood, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Hollywood licensing of uh, Hong Kong films and whatever. Um, yeah, it's it's internally you could say that you know these things are, are negative uh, forces against uh, local cinemas. But in the end, it's you know it's just a product of globalization. But and in, in, I think in general we tend to be very critical, and sometimes that can be seen as being very negative. I mean, I know that we often lambast some of the local productions that come out. But I don't think we were prepared to stop seeing them. I mean, I think we still have an affinity for the cinema uh, that drew us in back in those early days and that we still get enjoyment out of going and seeing a lot of what we see. But, you know, I think a lot of people that talk about it are willing to give up on it, and that's the difference. Hmm. You know, and uh, most people, that they are not as invested in a local cinema as we are. You know, and, and it's, it's fair. I don't have a, a huge investment in uh, Indian cinema. Or in uh, you know British cinema or in French cinema, I just don't have it. So you know if and, and you know honestly, cinema cannot survive when it's just supported by us. You say that now, but I predict in five years, lovebollywoodfilm.com will be coming. <laughs> <laughs> it will not be run by me. <laughs> I'll tell you after I see that the Bang movie tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe it'll change my whole life. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to be it for our show this week. Uh, coming up on a future episode to be hosted at an undisclosed time. Uh, what is the next local film that's coming up? Is that the <laughs> Showgirls or, or Showtime? Showtime. Or? Well, I've Showtime. already seen Showtime, and I'm not seeing it again. So <laughs> you guys can enjoy yourselves. Uh, I'm going to go see it just to see how bad it is. All right, so those that's just some things that will be coming up on uh, future shows. And so until then, uh, we will, as always, wish you good viewing. And we will see you next time. See you, everybody. Bye.
Hmm. I think you're you're missing the obvious reason. China hates people in- from India. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there is some political tension there, but that's a discussion <laughs> probably for another day. I shouldn't say it though. Sorry. <laughs> not true. <laughs> they, they We're really not cutting it. Yes, we're not going to cut that. All right. Our... <laughs> <laughs> Send your hate mail to kozo at kozo.com. No. Uh... I China hates them. I don't hate them. I have no problem with anyone. You, you are China, I love... Kozo. Yeah. I love all people equally. <laughs> Except Mr. Twister. No, I like him. He follows me on, on Twitter. So how can I dislike him? Yeah. <laughs> And if he does George that, George Lucas also promised that, but he hasn't yeah. he hasn't delivered. If Donnie yeah. makes a smaller film, he needs to make mismatched couples too. That's all I ask. I think so. He could play the father of a new breakdancer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let me show uh, you some of the moves we did back in my day. <laughs> except for now, they'll have spray-on stickers. <laughs> you know how many people watch Breakup Club and really talk about how great that ending was? <laughs> some people do. Some people do. Okay, no, I'm very sad then. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, it's almost like there's a reverse, a reverse, or, or kind of a crisscrossing of, of stars. Uh, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I am sorry. That's fine. <laughs> okay, uh, I have to get that. <laughs> uh, guys. Yeah. Continue without me. Okay. Uh, I'll be back later. I'll be back. <laughs> uh, Americans are the most self-centered people in the universe. I say this as an American. Um, I think the only way it'll work is if China takes over the world. (laughs) Puts all the white people in camps. No, I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) Please cut that part. (laughs) We're all going to be singing Kumbaya, right? Cut cut all the parts where I'm racist and evil. (laughs) Those are the best parts. What are you talking about? Cut out all the parts where I'm, I'm racist and evil. Jesus. And, and by the way, I didn't mean to insult Jesus. When, when did you insult okay. Jesus? So, please cut that part. I didn't mean to insult Jesus. <laughs>